We are continuing today in our our study of in the Gospel of Mark, and I want to just start by reading a passage, <clears throat> Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So we see in this passage that Jesus again is traveling from one city to another, and a man approaches Jesus, such as a young man, must be around my age, and he falls on his knees and he asks Jesus this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the question seems simple enough, and as we read it, it seems like Jesus' answer is also simple enough at first glance. And then as I started studying this, I realized that, that there are, are those that would take this passage of Scripture and twist it into something that it's not. And because of that, I want to I spend a little bit of time on these first two verses because I think it's important that we understand exactly what the writer was writing here. There are people that say, since Jesus made the statement, why do you call me good, no one is good except for God, that he was implying that he was not good. And therefore, if he was not good, he was not a deity. There is a very large religious organization that used this or try to use this scripture to prove that Jesus was not God in flesh, that he was just a man, because their their logic is that if the only one that is good is God, then Jesus said, I'm not good, then he must not be who he said he was. Now, to clarify that, it's not at all what Jesus was saying. Jesus was not saying that he wasn't good. It's not what he said. I believe that Jesus instead was challenging the young man to consider what it meant to call someone good. And this is why in that culture, many Jews, they measured a person's goodness by their external adherence to the law, including the Ten Commandments. So if you kept the Ten Commandments and you kept the law of Moses, then people looked at you like you were good. And I think Jesus was trying to make, an, make a point to get him to think about what is good. You called me good, so what is good? In this type of thinking that this that the Jews had at that time, and the way that they define goodness as being something that a person can achieve through their own human efforts, that means that salvation could be gotten on our own, just by things that we go and do. And I believe that since Jesus was a Jew, he knew the culture, I think his statement to the man was not an attempt to deny his own goodness and therefore deny his, de deny his deity, not at all. Rather, I believe that Jesus, what Jesus said to the young man was to try to cause the young man to realize that he was good. That when you look at me, you're correct, I am good. And then when the young man recognized that he was good, he would realize 
and recognize Jesus' deity. See if that makes sense. What you don't want to do is take this scripture and try to, and somebody try to tell you that Jesus wasn't God in the flesh. And there are people that will do that, and I think it's important that we understand what Jesus was trying to do. He's saying, you call me good, what do you mean by good? No one's good but God. And if he could get the man to understand that no one is good but God, but I am good, it's one of those, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Right? So that's what he was getting across. He wasn't, he wasn't denying his deity. Okay? So don't let anybody try to twist that into something that it's not. Jesus' answer as to what he needed to do going on to inherit eternal life first began with the challenge to the young man to measure himself against the Ten Commandments. Here's what you need to do before you start. Look at the Ten Commandments. You know what they say. They say, do not murder, do not commit adultery, and so on. And Jesus pretty much, by saying that and repeating those commandments, says, have you done that? And I'm sure the man felt very proud of himself at that point because he said, of course. I've done all of these things since I was a kid. Thinking that this must mean I'm, I'm okay. What he was saying, that the young man was saying, based on that, I'm doing all that the law requires. And therefore, I must be fine. And Jesus didn't disagree with the young man. But he added one thing. He said, if you want eternal life, then you need to give up what you cherish the most, which would be his wealth and prosperity, and follow me. Hmm. I was okay with that Ten Commandments thing. I was okay with following the law. But that last thing you threw in about giving up everything and following you, I'm not really okay with that. Mark records that the young man walked away sad. And then Mark wrote specifically why the man walked away sad. It was because he had great wealth. He had a lot to lose. And we have to realize that this young man wasn't upset that there was no way for him to gain eternal life. That's not what he was upset about. He was upset about the cost. He was upset because the cost was too high. The, it was a price that he was unwilling to pay. Now the, keep in mind, he came to Jesus. Jesus didn't go seek him out. He came to Jesus, fell on his knees before Jesus and said, Good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And you would think that that would mean whatever you tell me, I'll go do. But it was because within himself, he thought that he had done everything already. Jesus had asked him to give up what he valued most in order to gain something that had so much more value. But he couldn't do that. He couldn't, see, he couldn't see that what Jesus was offering him was more valuable than all the things he had on this earth. And it, it's, it's interesting, since he asked specifically, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life, that he put more value on his things 
knowing that he didn't have eternal life here. And he wasn't willing to give up those things to get what he was asking for. But rather than sacrifice what he couldn't keep to gain what he wouldn't lose, he decided to hold on to what he had. If that means I have to give up everything I have to get something that I can get no other way, then I choose just to keep what I have. When you look at it that way, it doesn't seem like too good of a deal for him. But he just wasn't willing to give it up. And I, I believe this is the important thing. Before we read anything into this more than what it is, I believe that it's because Jesus was able to look past this young man's actions and what he said and really see his motive and where his heart was. Today, it's the same way. It's no different today. God can see beyond what we do and see why we do it. If we only come to church because we feel like we're required to, if we only come to church because we don't want somebody calling us and saying, where were you? Then we're coming to church for the wrong reason. If we only lift our hands in worship service because somebody says, let's lift our hands in worship, then don't bother. Because you're not doing it from your heart. You're doing it because somebody asked you to. In the case of the rich young man, Jesus saw that what this young man was doing, these things were all external. But in his heart, he was a whole lot like the Pharisees. Remember, they were the ones that looked all holy on the outside. They kept the law. They did all the right things. They went to the temple when they were supposed to. They could quote all these passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. They were good. When you look at him, you go, wow, if anybody's holy, that man's holy. And I'm sure that this man, when he came to Jesus, he thought he had it figured out already. Saying, since I've done all of these things, he's going to tell me that I'm in. This young man had all had done all the things that made him appear to be holy and good. But it was the things that made him appear to be holy and good in other people's eyes. And see, that didn't matter. What other people thought didn't matter at all. Because other people would have been okay with him keeping everything and just following the law. But when you go to the one who has the ability to give you eternal life, and you go to him and you say, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? And he tells you and you go, no, I thought I had it all figured out. And there are people that do the same thing. They want to come to God for a specific reason at a specific price. But then if God asks more than they're willing to give, they walk away. I want you to give me your all. Eh, I'm not okay with all. How about 70%? No, all. See, Jesus didn't even offer, as he was walking off, Jesus didn't holler out, what about 60%? No. He said, give it all. We have to realize that it wasn't other people's standards that mattered. 
I'm sure that if this young man went to one of the Pharisees and said, okay, here's what I do. I've kept all the commandments since I was a boy. I do this, 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 and this. Am I good? They'd go, well, certainly. That's what we do. Because they didn't see his heart. They didn't see his motivation for what he was looking for and why he was trying to get it. Now, based on the passage of scriptures, Scripture that we just read and the ones that we're getting ready to read, it would be easy to jump to a couple conclusions that could be inaccurate. So I just ask that before you jump to any conclusions on, on these scriptures about having wealth, don't do that just yet, please. Mark 10, verses 23 through 27. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Earlier in the book of Mark, Mark had written a, about a, a particular time when Jesus warned the disciples about the deceitfulness of riches. In fact, let's read Mark 4 and, 20, and 419. Rather. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires of other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. The deceitfulness of wealth. Remember that. And then back in the 10th chapter of Mark, I believe that Jesus was again trying to get them to realize that the things that we treasure in this world will eventually come to an end. For us to think that all of our stuff and all of our belongings and, and all of the things that we accumulate in our life really are going to matter, we're being deceived. And I believe that's what he was talking about when he said the deceitfulness of riches. Because there are people that put their trust, especially in the last few years they've seen that it wasn't really the case, that put their trust in, in their investments. And we've seen that there was people that lost tens of millions of dollars. But if you would ask them a couple years ago if everything was okay, oh yeah, never going to go away. I'm set for life. With that in mind, the only thing that should matter for the disciples then and for us today is what counts for eternity. If you look at the oldest person that you've ever known, my grandfather died when he was 96, I believe. 97. And we look at that and go, wow, that is a long life. But 97 years compared to eternity is nothing. So we have to put everything into perspective. Are we willing to take what little we have down here on this earth for what little time we have and hold on to that as opposed to what God offers us and that's a life of eternal gladness? Those who fail to let go of the world can end up forfeiting what they should have valued the most, and that's eternal life. 
I believe that's why Jesus made the statement in verse 23 about how hard is it for a rich man to enter into the kingdom? Not necessarily because of their riches, I believe, but rather that the riches could become a distraction or they could be deceitful, like Jesus said back in Mark 4.19. There's nothing wrong with the riches in themselves. But what Jesus was saying, that those things can deceive us into thinking that that's where our hope is. This rich young ruler came to Jesus asking for eternal life. But really his trust wasn't in Jesus, it was in the things he already had. There are a lot of people no different in our world today. So with the statement that Jesus made here, the disciples are somewhere between confused and amazed. They're like, what is he talking about? Then in verse 25, Jesus makes a statement that I've heard explained many different ways about how it's easy, easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. One explanation was that the eye of a needle was a small gate in the wall of Jerusalem so that a camel could not pass through it without unloading all the things it was carrying. And the thought behind that was that that people must unload themselves of all the earthly possessions so they can obtain salvation. And that's, that's good. And this explanation sounds good by definition, but in doing some stu- a lot of studying this week, it's also inaccurate. Here's why. There is no historical evidence that gates like that ever existed in any city in Israel, historically, in the first century A.D., So while it sounds good, and it's a great analogy, it's not historically accurate. Now, let me say this before I give an explanation here. It's not a heaven or hell issue. If you want to believe that it's the small gate, you can go to heaven just as as well as you believe it's not. This is not a heaven or hell issue. This is just, since this is Sunday school, and we're trying to learn some things, let me offer up something that a lot of people have brought around. I think that it's good that we need to understand these things to the best of our ability. To help us understand what Jesus was saying, we can look at the words that not only Mark used in his gospel, but Matthew and Luke recorded this exact same event. And let's look at the words that they used. Mark and Matthew used the same word when they described the eye of a needle. Luke used a different word, but both, all three of them, the words that they used referred to a needle that was used for sewing. A needle. The word that was used for camel was a word that was similar to a Greek word for a rope or a cable. And sometimes this rope or cable was actually made of camel hair. So based on this, it's probably best to take Jesus' statement that a camel cannot go through the eye of a needle, probably not best to take it at face value. But rather treat it as a a type of hyperbole. And a hyperbole is an exaggeration for effect. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's, It's, for example, like we would say, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Well, you don't mean that you could eat a horse. It's a hyperbole. Jesus used this a lot. Jesus had a really cool sense of humor. Look in Matthew 23 and 24. You blind guides, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. 
That was hyperbole. He didn't mean that they really swallowed a camel. So this eye of a needle thing, you can look at it however you want, but it's based on hyperbole and probably most likely from what I have read that it was a needle, but they were talking about putting a big giant rope through a needle. Now, I don't know about you, I have enough time putting a little tiny thread through the eye of a needle, even with bifocals. So that big rope through the eye of a needle, it just ain't going to happen. Pardon my English. So at this point, after Jesus throws that out there, they are completely confused and amazed. And they look, each, look at each other in verse 26, and they said, if that's the case, then who's going to be able to be saved? We had this all wrong. Here's the way they looked at it. Here's a young man that comes to Jesus who says he's kept all the commandments since he was a little boy. And Jesus said, that's great. And since wealth in that culture was a lot of times associated with righteousness, because the Jews believed a lot of times that if you were wealthy, it's because God blessed you because you were so good. They said, well, if he's kept all the commandments and he's wealthy because God has blessed him, which means he must be a good person, if anybody's going to go to heaven, it's going to be him. The problem was, Jesus completely blew that out of the water, and the young man's gone. And they're looking at each other. They didn't, it doesn't say they asked Jesus about it. They looked at each other and said, then, who's going to be saved? This guy, this guy just left. We gave him a 10. They hold up their little cards. And they're amazed and say, well, then what chance do we have? If somebody that close to perfect can't be saved, how can anybody be saved? And Jesus agreed with them. But here's what it came down to. A person cannot be saved by adhering to the law. A person cannot be saved by conforming to the law or by giving up all their possessions, either one. The key to what Jesus told him wasn't so much in giving up his possessions, it was in following me. But Jesus knew that he wouldn't follow him if he still had all his possessions. If eternal life was based on meeting a list of requirements, really everyone would fall short because nobody on their own can fully meet all of those requirements. But even though no one is capable on their own to receive salvation, that doesn't mean that salvation is unattainable. That's why Jesus said, with God all things are possible. Right. You can't do it on your own. That's what I'm trying to teach you here, disciples, is that young man looked like he was good, but you can't do it on your own. It didn't matter how good he was, unless he was willing to follow me and give up all the things that he has, he's not going to receive eternal life. And I believe that really Jesus was referring to his ultimate reason for even being on earth. 
Here's the plan of God. I'm here for a reason. God put me here. He put me with you guys so that we can travel around and tell people the, this good news, this gospel, for a purpose. That it's about following me. Remember how frustrated Jesus got when, when He saw that the people just followed Him for the miracles and for the free food and all the, the cool stuff. They forgot all about the message. Mark 10, 28-31. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much as this present, in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them, persecutions. Well, you just could have left that part out, Jesus. We were good up till then. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last, first. So Peter, who was not shy at all about speaking up on his opinion... He points out to Jesus that we've already given up everything to follow you. We did what you told this guy to do. D Jesus didn't disagree with Peter. And in turn, he, he told Peter that you'll be rewarded for your faith. But then he clarified that this reward might not come in this life. But you will receive your reward. So he had that going for him. The primary reward that Peter would receive for following Jesus would be in the world to come. It was the answer to what the young man was looking for. It was eternal life. Peter, your, your reward might not come down on here, here on this earth. In fact, i got to tell you, there's going to be some persecution. But in the age to come, you're going to have something that you could never have on this earth. And Jesus was saying, you might get some good things down here on this earth, but the real reward comes after this life is over. I believe we have to look at it much the same way. We might be blessed beyond belief here on this earth and have all kinds of things and possessions but no matter what we have, eventually we will have to let go of them. Either we lose them or we die. Jesus' statement, this is a little bit what I was referring to a while ago. Jesus' statement in verse 30 about receiving back a hundredfold or a hundred times as much as we have given in this life has often been used wrongly. To, and justify the teaching that when we give a portion of our material wealth to God, that He will return it to us in kind a hundred times. So, many so-called men of God have used it to say, send me ten dollars and God will give you back a thousand. 
That's not what he meant. But it's been twisted to, to come out to where it turns God into a type of an elaborate magic trick or into this glorified investment scheme. That will hear, and they read the scripture, you will receive a hundred times as much. But they take it completely out of context for their own benefit because they know if they can get enough people to send them ten bucks, you can get wealthy. It is not what Jesus was saying. Before we send all of our money off to a, a TV pastor that we will never see in person, we need to look at a couple things and take some things into consideration. Number one, the rich young ruler was asking for eternal life, not for material wealth. He wasn't say, saying, Jesus, can you show me how to take everything I have and get more? No, he was asking for eternal life. Number two, Jesus didn't ask the ruler to give him anything. He didn't tell the ruler, if you give me all your stuff, you'll have eternal life. wasn't what he said. Jesus didn't ask him for anything, contrary to what the TV evangelists do. The same account in Matthew's Gospel indicates that the hundredfold blessing will come at the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne. That means when we get to heaven. So for me to stand up here and say, when we take up the offering today, if you'll put in $10, when you get out in your car, you can take your wallet out and there'll be a $100 bill in there, is not biblical. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm not saying that at all. God can do whatever He wants to do. He is sovereign. He can do what He wants, when He wants. But that's not what this Scripture means. Because to, to, to reduce it to that puts a price on eternity. I believe that the blessings we receive through our giving we might not ever see until we get to heaven. If you realize what Jesus told Peter and the disciples when they said, we've already given up everything. He didn't say, well, don't worry about it. You're, you know, it won't be long, you'll be rich. He even went as far to say, there will be persecution. You mean it's going to get worse? Yeah, pretty much. But in the end, it's going to be more than you can possibly imagine, Peter. And you know what? I know for a fact that Peter believed it. Because Peter died as a martyr. Now let me clarify. I do not believe that there's anything wrong with a person being wealthy. I I do not think there's anything wrong with that. I believe that a person can be ridiculously wealthy and still go to heaven. Jesus was not saying that a rich person cannot go to heaven. He was simply making the point that a rich person is often distracted by their wealth and their priorities end up being wrong. 
they end up being deceived, as he said back in Mark chapter 4. As with the young man in this passage, the request that Jesus made of him was simply to point out where his priorities were. See, we can have all the things of this world, a beautiful home and and a fleet of beautiful cars and a big boat and, and money just coming out of our pockets, but if we still keep Jesus as the focus of our life, that's okay. If we still use those things to to try to help people to receive the gospel. It's okay. Don't let anybody tell you that there's something wrong with having wealth. But I'll finish that statement by saying, don't let anybody tell you that the the Bible is all about how to get wealth. Because it's not. It's about how to get eternal life. If you remember, the whole focus of this entire passage of Scripture was a young man that came to Jesus and he didn't say, how do I get rich? He said, how do I get eternal life? By the young man's answer, we see that it was in his status and in his wealth. That's where his priority was. He wasn't really in following Jesus. He wanted to hang on to everything he had and then dump eternal life in on top of it. This is my personal opinion. And I don't really have anything to back this up other than this is my personal opinion. I believe it's very likely that if the man would have said, you know what, Jesus? I'll be right back. I'm going to go do that. This is a place where I think Jesus might have said, Come here, son. You don't have to do that. Now, I don't have Bible to back that up, but I think the whole point of him telling him to do it was to see if it was in his heart. If you have all of those things, but you are not holding on to them so tight that you wouldn't trade them for eternal life, that's okay. Because at that point, had the man said, I will do that. I'll be right back. That right there showed that he wasn't deceived by his riches and his wealth and his status. The rich young ruler lost out on something of great value by choosing to opt out of Jesus' plan of salvation. By refusing to give up the things that he valued most to follow Jesus, He forfeited eternal life. What a terrible trade. And the sad part is, is he knew that he didn't have eternal life or he wouldn't have asked how to get it. But he wasn't willing to pay the price because his heart was in the possessions. Jesus didn't disagree with Peter in the fact that he had sacrificed everything to follow after him. Jesus did warn Peter that while you're correct in your observation that you've given up everything, don't use it as justification to compare yourself to other people who have not. Because if you start bragging about that, then all of a sudden you find that you've fallen to the sin of pride. 
And there are people that do that in our day too. The only thing they want to tell you is how much they've sacrificed to live for Jesus. That's pride. If we sacrifice it, leave it alone. All of us have a passion or a cause or a significant focus of interest in our lives. And I believe that God has given us these passions and these interests and talents, and we choose what to do with them. If somebody gives you an ability to, to speak in public, you can use it to spread the gospel, or you can use it for something for your own benefit. You can do both. I believe that the things that we have on this earth, the possessions that we have, the money that we have, I believe that God wants us to make a strong impact on our world by using those gifts. If we have an ability to sing, and it's a God-given ability, then we probably shouldn't be out in some club singing. But you know what? You look at a lot of singers that are in pop music, R&B, probably R&B especially, who came out of their father's church. And God gave them a gift and they chose what to do with it. Now, there's nothing wrong with if you choose that you want to go sing some secular songs. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that becomes your only focus, then there is something wrong with that. Sometimes in order for us to put those, that passion that we have or those talents that we have or those abilities that God has given us, Jesus will sometimes break us down to get rid of that pride. Because when we get so full of ourselves, we start to believe that we can do it on our own. Just like this young man. He came to Jesus thinking he had the answer already. He had it all figured out. When I get there, I'm going to tell him that I kept all the commandments. I've kept the law since I was a little boy. I do everything else. So go ahead. Give me, give me the eternal life thing. I think he was astonished when Jesus said, go sell all of it. What? I can't do that. To let go of our pride means that we start putting something or someone else in front of ourselves. I know a man that started off, he bought a little car auction. And he built it in, started in Indianapolis, and he built it into this really big network of auctions. He ended up selling it off to Minnesota Power and Light several years ago for somewhere around $117 million dollars. And what he did with what he chose to do with this money was missions. He would charter airplanes, not a little tiny airplane, big airplanes, fill them up with supplies and stuff and fly them to mission fields. And God just continued to bless this man. 
Because that was his calling. And God blessed him, but he didn't say, well, let me hang on to all of this. He let go of it and used it to spread the gospel. And God blessed him even more. I believe that the rich young ruler could have used his status and his wealth to help a lot of people. And if he would have done that, then he could have really found the treasure that he was looking for. He could have said, I'll tell you what, Jesus, I'll, I'll do that. Let me get rid of all my stuff, and, um, and I'll finance you and the other 12 guys here. You know, I'll provide for all your transportation, all of that stuff. But he wasn't willing to do that. One thing that is for sure in this story that we see is that God doesn't want there to be any barriers like our pride standing in the way of us serving Him with our talent. The Bible is clear that anybody who gives up something valuable to follow Jesus will be greatly rewarded. But it's up to us entirely It's our choice to listen to Him or not. To give it up or cling to it. That's our choice. In the end, we have to ask ourselves this question. Are we more like the rich young man or are we more like Peter? Have we invested our time and efforts in, in worldly treasures that have no eternal value and in the end will disappear? Or have we invested our time and our resources and our talents in the things that matter most for God? I grew up with a very strong heart for giving to missions. When I went to college, the, the college I went to was very, very mission-minded. And I took on the idea that I would much rather give than go. I've said this before. I would much rather to give of my resources and let somebody else go. And that was the way I really looked at it, in my heart. But there came a point in my life that God spoke to me and said, now it's time for you to go. And I was kind of like the rich young ruler. No, I just want to give. I don't want to go. But after I went, I realized the greatest blessing that I've ever realized. Not financially. I didn't come back and, and check my bank account and see that it had gone up by $300,000 because I went to Africa. No, I came back and looked at it and there was nothing in it. <laughs> if you really want to know the truth. So where have we invested our resources? 
Have we put them in things that other people look at and go, wow, you are just, you're something? Or have we put them in some place where God looks at them and goes, wow, you are something? So where are our priorities? Jesus said in Matthew 6 and 33, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He also said something else in that same chapter in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I will close with two questions. Number one, where are your priorities? Number two, where is your treasure? Because according to the Bible, wherever that treasure is, that's where your heart is. God bless you.